This podcast takes you into the rarely discussed realm of the personal decisions leaders have taken that have influenced their business decisions and developed them into the leaders they are today. The refreshingly honest experiences of those who have been very successful provide an insight into the challenges they faced, the successes they achieved, and the people who influenced them along their journey. Here's our host, Mark Silvera. Hey, welcome to Business Made Personal. Really pleased today to have Dallas Booth with us. So Dallas Booth is the Chief Executive Officer of the National Insurance Brokers Association of Australia, or NEBA as we know it. He has been in this role since July 2011, a long time, Dallas. Dallas leads the NEBA's industry representations efforts and promotes the role and professionalism of brokers to governments, regulators, businesses, and the broader community. He has also been instrumental in developing NEBA's range of opportunities for brokers, insurers, and other stakeholders to meet, network, and learn. Unfortunately for us, Dallas retires from this role on the 31st of October 2021. Dallas is a lawyer by training and has worked in and around insurance for many, many years. He has held senior positions at the Insurance Council of Australia. That was for eight years and also managed asbestos compensation for the James Hardy companies for over four years. Dallas is admitted as a barrister at law in New South Wales and is a fellow of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Welcome to Business Made Personal, Dallas. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me along. I'm delighted to spend a little bit of time with you. Oh, it's our absolute pleasure. Let's talk a little bit about your life prior to NEBA. Was the Insurance Council of Australia the first time you were involved in the insurance industry? My involvement in insurance-type matters goes back to the 1980s when I was working in the New South Wales Attorney General's Department. And uh, we did legislation, we did parliamentary work, we did advices to the Attorney General of the day. And not quite sure why, but most things that came along with an insurance flavour seemed to head towards in my direction and finish up on my desk. So I started looking at insurance matters fairly early on in my career in the government. In the mid-1980s, Nick Griner was, was elected as Premier of New South Wales. Attorney General John Dowd wanted to seriously review the compulsory third-party insurance arrangements and, in fact, wanted to privatise CTP in New South Wales. And I had the privilege to work with John Dowd and to actually help him prepare the legislation to privatise CTP That was a billion-dollar premium transfer from the old government-owned GIO into the private sector and I think into a model that I think has worked very well for motor vehicle owners uh, and for people injured on the roads in New South Wales ever since. The whole, not only did we privatise, but we also redirected the compensation scheme, getting it away from generous damages awards for whiplash and minor injuries towards genuinely looking after people with serious injuries and lifetime care needs. And I think that was the start of a real switch towards taking care of the person according to their, particularly the seriously injured people. And that movement ultimately led to the development of things like NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. It's been an interest in insurance, often with a personal injury compensation element, but with insurance for a very long time, both inside government when I was with New South Wales Attorney Generals and the Motor Act Authority and outside government, both at the ICA 
and more recently at NEBA. And it's, so it's been a really interesting series of opportunities to make a contribution in different ways. So did you ever think you'd end up front and centre in something like the Insurance Council of Australia? Well, working at ICA, working at NEBA helps, lets me do what I love, which is to try and shape the law and to try and shape the process to achieve good outcomes for the community. And so when you're in government, you're obviously making the law and you're trying to shape it and do that role well. When you're outside government, what you're trying to do is to show government, whether it's Treasury, Attorney Generals, the relevant ministers, uh, to show them what works well and what's likely to not work well. And that's and the whole area of unintended consequences, you know, particular aspects, how, how the insurance process really does serve policyholders and the community well, things that you've got to preserve and, and really nurture, but also things that you should avoid. And that's been a, a real interest of mine all the way through is not so much the operational side, but the design side, the design of the law, the design of the process, and the design of new and interesting and different things. And that's been a, a real uh, pleasure for me to have had an opportunity in quite a few ways to redesign things or, or to create opportunities which will make the insurance process work better for the benefit of uh, policyholders, claimants in the community. So you use the word pleasure, which I like there, Dallas. I'm just wondering whether it was more a challenge than it was a pleasure dealing with some of the legislative issues over the years. Oh, look, there's been major challenges. One of the most fascinating for me and, and most professionally rewarding was when I was running the James Hardy Asbestos Compensation Trust. And the, the James Hardy companies bought massive amounts of product liability insurance in the 1990s through HIH. And so we actually, the Asbestos Trust actually became involved in litigation in the UK courts about the recovery of HIH reinsurance protection back to the beneficiaries in Australia. And it was just unbelievably difficult challenge. The legal issues, the fact that they lost at the first instance hearing, they then lost it at the English Court of Appeal 3 0. And we had to make a decision. Do we spend another $2 million and go to the House of Lords? And we did. And we won 5 0 in the UK House of Lords. And we changed the common law of England. We changed the common law of cross border liquidations. And we were able to repatriate specifically for the asbestos victims, ultimately about 70 to $80 million back to Australia because of that work. And it was massively challenging to actually be part of it, to try and make it work, but hugely satisfying to achieve that result for the asbestos victims. That's a huge you know, feather in your cap. Did you actually get to meet some of the asbestos victims? I met a few, and it's, it's a very sad process. The development of asbestos disease, especially mesothelioma, is just seriously nasty. You get exposed to the dust, and then nothing happens for 20 to 25 years. And then if you are one of the unfortunate group, something clicks and the body triggers this uh, massive uh, cancer, which the doctors cannot tell in advance whether it's going to happen or not. And once it does happen, they really can't treat it. And very, very sadly, people pass within 18 months, 12 months, 12 to 18 months. It's a very sad thing. And the, the thing that gave me some degree of satisfaction, which is a funny word to use, but at least the working effectively as the defendant on behalf of the James Hardy companies, but also working with the plaintiff lawyers 
and our own legal teams, we were able to run compensation claims very quickly, very efficiently to focus on the needs, you know, the victims and their families. And quite often we were we were resolving complicated common law damages claims often within weeks and occasionally within days because the thing we did try to do was to show to the people that their families were going to be looked after uh, before they passed away. It's a very hard to get any sort of personal satisfaction out of, out of asbestos disease. That's something that we did to try and make sure we could achieve that outcome. Do you think that affected you personally being involved in something like that and whilst you're getting a terrific outcome for the family, just seeing those people uh, actually not surviving? Look, it's massively sad. That was the world. So, you know, you just have to take, accept that that's the best that the medical profession can do in respect of this nasty disease and just do the best that you can from a compensation point of view and to make sure, you know, proper compensation is paid in valid circumstances quickly and efficiently. That's the least we can do. And that was our goal at the time. Yeah. So you jump from the frying pan dealing with politicians into the fire, dealing with insurance brokers. Did you have a view on insurance brokers before you joined NEBA? Well, it was interesting. Whilst I was at ICA, obviously, is focusing on quite significantly portion of its time on direct insurance matters. But it certainly struck me along the way that there's a whole other world out there. And that whilst the direct side and, and particularly domestic is critically important for, you know, the or, the citizens across the communities. But you think about it, that the whole world of commerce actually does not work without insurance. And the reason why it works with insurance is because insurance brokers are in there trying to understand the risk needs of their clients and then going back to the insurance markets to get appropriate cover to meet those needs. So I was fascinated that there was a whole nother world that I didn't know much about, but clearly played a massively significant role and I've always, I had always, I was aware of NEBA. I was aware of the work that my predecessor, Noel Pedersen, was doing, and a lot of very good work that Noel did as well. And in, you know, prior to my, me taking over, the difference between the direct business, which is mostly domestic, and the broker, the intermediated business, was that critical word, advice. The protection given by insurance, and add to that. The, the element of advice to make sure that the process actually worked properly. I thought that was critically important. I was absolutely honoured when Noel retired. I threw my hat in the ring to uh, to take over the role, and absolutely delighted and honoured to get to be asked to uh, to lead NEBA uh, for the next period. So that was a real joy. Yeah. So knowing what you know now, ten years down the track, and what you've seen about of insurance brokers. I mean, if you look at how the Australia is focused, we're really focused on a lot of advertising from direct insurers. Do you think brokers have done a good job in educating clients as to their actual core value and how they're able to help clients? There's two groups out there. There are people who use insurance brokers. And what we find time and again is, and the evidence of this comment comes from the Vero SME Index research papers, but the, the evidence is that for people who regularly use brokers, they know and understand what they do and they respect and value what they do. And more often than not, they are rusted on to their broker because they know that there is a really important role that the broker is playing. 
Unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there who either don't own and run businesses or for whatever reason have never had to use a broker. There is not a lot of understanding of what brokers do and, and how they operate, the value they provide. And that's a constant challenge. And often we find talking to members of parliament, talking to people who work in the regulatory agencies, but also work in the government departments, quite often there's not a lot of understanding of commercial insurance arrangements broadly, uh, the sorts of policies that are needed by the commercial businesses, but also not, not a lot of understanding of the role that brokers play in putting those arrangements together. Frankly, one of my jobs at, at NEBA all the way through, you know, almost monthly you do insurance broking 101 every time you're talking to somebody uh, for the first time. That's just part and parcel of the job is the storytelling part, the, the storytelling of what brokers do and, and how it works, the benefits they think and the whole value proposition. So you've been very successful in lobbying on behalf of brokers across a range of things, including, you know, recently commissions and legislative issues. What drives you to achieve that? I'm wanting the insurance process, and that's the whole insurance process, to work well for the people and the businesses and the business owners and the corporations of Australia. That's what I'm wanting. There is this thing there called risk. You can't take a photo of it. You can't point to it, but it exists. And if risk goes wrong and materialises, that can have massive financial and often and sometimes physical impacts on the people directly involved, whether it's personal injury in the case of CTP or workers' comp, or whether it's property damage for storms, fires and so on, and other sorts of damage now in the modern world in terms of cyber. Uh, When risk materialises, things go wrong, people can be hurt quite badly and they can be hurt financially. So the role of the insurance process is critically important for individuals and the community. And my goal has always been to provide guidance and assistance, especially from to governments and to regulators to try and do what I can to help them understand how the process works and what can be done to make the process ultimately better for policyholders and the community. That's what it's about. It's interesting that from a NEBA perspective, we almost never go in to argue about the impact on brokers because I think, frankly, they don't care. And that's sad because brokers, the community needs insurance brokers, absolutely needs insurance brokers to provide that advice element. What we actually, every time we go into government, we talk about the impact on clients, the impact on on the policyholder, the impact on the insurance process and whether things will be better or not. That's how we operate. And I think it's been a really important contribution, I think, from NEBA over the period to to play the role. And so the brokers themselves focus on their clients and meeting the insurance needs of their clients. NEBA also focuses on the clients more broadly in terms of the operation of legislation proposals and other things to make sure that the broader process operates properly and efficiently in the client's interests. And I think if you ever wanted proof of that, if you looked at the AFCA stats in terms of broker complaints. Off the press, generally, uh, insurance brokers, 0.45% of complaints to AFCA in the last 12 months. Just extraordinary. Uh, 16,000 general insurance complaints, 300 broker complaints. There's not a lot wrong with insurance broking in Australia. And it's a great career, right? I mean, I've been a broker throughout a long time. But how do you see the broking community evolving, certainly through your tenure, but also past it? The thing that I've been fascinated about is 
the role of technology. And what I've, particularly for the last five to six years, I've been looking for the big digital disruption. And it's interesting, and I've actually been looking around Australia and I've also been looking around the world for the digital disruption. And the thing that I've been observing is that over the course of the last 10 years ago and more, insurance was very paper-based. And it, even you go to London, the brokers physically literally walking the file into Lloyd's to talk to the underwriters in their boxes. Uh, very paper-based and traditionally in Australia as well. Nowadays, we're, it's all on platforms. So there's been quite significant technology developments in how the business is done and how the interaction between the broker and the underwriter. The really critical thing is the relationship between the broker and their client is still very much a personal relationship. And with all of the technology developments that are occurring, that fundamental personal relationship, I think, is crucial and remains crucial, and I think will remain, will continue to be crucial. And so business owners in the future, they we've just gone through a process with the NEBA Board of Directors to think about insurance broking 2025 and taking into account the markets, the development, changing nature of risk, regulation, technology. And the thing that we're, we can't see beyond the fact that the personal relationship between the broker and their client in helping them understand risk and helping them manage risk and helping them finance risk, that is going to be crucial. So the business owner will talk to their lawyer for their legal affairs. They'll talk to their accountant for their financial and tax affairs. But the broker really has to position themselves. They're the ones who talk to the client about risk because risk is real and at risk will can, up, can catch up and, and destroy you if you're not careful. So that's key. And I think that that's going to happen regardless of further developments of technology. Technology will continue to any transaction which is repeatable will be mechanised if it hasn't been mechanised already. That's a given. But the thing that you can't mechanise is the conversation that occurs between the broker and the client about their risks and about how they're going to manage and survive those risks if anything materialises. That's the crucial bit. And I think that's a really interesting comment, right? Because this is my own personal view. I think what's happened in broking, we've tended to dumb things down and we've focused more on price, whereas the value is really in exactly what you said, that risk advice, that risk-based conversation that helps the client understand. Do you think that as brokers evolve, there will be a greater focus on risk-based advice as opposed to just giving the client another product? Brokers who are concentrating their business on transaction processing, which is, you know, you get a bit of information, you put a policy in place, you check a couple of things, you renew the policy, that's transaction processing. Computers are doing all of that or most of that now, and they will do all of that in three years' time. The absolutely guarantee for that. And so that's the way of the future. There's no doubt about that. People, this is the broader issue about technology. People will be doing intelligent things where they're adding, doing, being creative, develop, issuing, you know, having the ability to understand issues, work out the different challenges, sort out priorities and so on, and work with their clients and understanding the true needs of the clients. I just recently, we did the interviews for Insurance Broker of the Year. We'll make the announcement on the 28th of October. All five finalists were over, were just stunningly impressive in the way in which the thing, the message for me this year was the way in which the finalists engage with their clients to understand their clients' risks and needs 
to get to make sure that the clients themselves were fully aware and fully appreciative of their risks and needs, and then and only then to come and develop a program. And that's that personal element. And the words that we use, they're now been around, they're around broking for a little while now, the whole concept of trusted advisor. A trusted advisor on risk management and risk financing. And that's what insurance broking, I think, is about now, but it's going to be going to come even more focused on those in that role. And that's what came out of our 2025 strategy discussions. That's really how things will emerge. So talking about things personal, has the industry, the broking community, given you personally something that you never expected? The really fascinating thing about the role at NEBA is that I'm learning stuff every day. There are so many good things happening right around, right across the country. You know, it, it is known that I've been working, doing a little bit of work in the background to support Treasury on the Northern Australia Cyclone Reinsurance Pool. And somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, have you checked out arrangements for the Indigenous communities? And I'll be honest and say, I hadn't thought about that. I'm really glad they tapped me on the shoulder. I spoke to a few brokers in Northern Queensland and in Darwin, and the insurance arrangements for the Indigenous communities are different and they need to be thought about and they need to be taken into account. They are different. And so I gathered a whole bunch of information about how things work and and the key considerations, and I was able to provide that to Treasury. This happened two months ago. This is the sort of stuff that I'm, I'm still learning things and bringing information together, gathering it from people on the ground and converting that into a way which makes sense for the broader policy process or policy development process. That's just been a massively enjoyable process to be able to make that contribution and and to do that every time. I mean, earlier in the year, working with the broker, Michael Alexander from Albury, and the fact that he's been able to work with one of the underwriting agencies and find cover for the leisure and amusement industry, not in Australia because there just wasn't any. And to work with him and and the work, he did all the work, but just find solutions to things and working with brokers to find solutions where there there didn't appear to be solutions. So it's been one after the other, and it's just been so enjoyable from my perspective that every now and then you can play a role that just highlights something little that you just didn't know about. You can make a contribution and, again, try and make the process work better because you're able to find something out and, and bring that into the picture. Yeah. And what would you say has been the most challenging time over the last 10 years? It's been, in one sense, the thing that's fascinated me, you know, stopping and looking backwards. Since I joined NEBA in 2011, there's been a major review of some nature happening nearly all the time. In the early 20-teens, it was disasters and flood. In the middle teens, it was FOFA. FOFA 1 under the Labor government, FOFA 2 under the coalition government. Around that time, you then had a financial system inquiry under David Murray. Um, Not long after that, you then moved into the Royal Commission and then other things happening in and around that as well. So insurance brokers have been within scope right through all of those processes. And the really odd thing is that ultimately for a lot of it, where reforms have been introduced, insurance brokers have been affected. In all of that process, not one person has demonstrated misconduct or systemic poor client outcomes for clients. None of it. Time and time again, we're in there running the arguments, arguing the case as if there were massive issues and there aren't any. And that's been really quite extraordinary. In one sense, 
if I write a book, and I'm not going to write a book, but if I did write a book, it would be on the failure of public policy in financial services because there's been so much concentration on on reform where there actually wasn't a problem in the first place. It's not my word. I wish I'd have come up with this, but time and again, in changes to insurance broking has been brokers becoming the solution to someone else's problem. That's the thing. And it's funny you mentioned that because I was speaking to someone just yesterday and we were talking about getting flood cover in far north Queensland or flood cover anywhere. And when you think about how those problems originally kicked off, it was either bad council planning because they allowed people to build on floodplains or bad building and design, right? None of which sits with the insurance community, but we're now expected to pick up the pieces. Well, a good friend who works in the London market for one of the big broker associations there, their number one agenda item is now climate. Six months ago when I saw that, I couldn't understand why he's getting excited about climate. Climate is the big risk facing the world, facing communities, facing people, facing businesses. We know about it in Australia because, by geez, we got whacked in the bushfires, but we've also been whacked by, by the cyclones and the floods. You know, we've got to actually find ways or find better ways for the Australian community to live with the weather that we've got and to live with the weather that we're going to get over the next 50 years and more. Uh, we're not good at it. The massive damage occurs and uh, we've got to be much better. And you can't just rely on insurance because the cost of claims becomes more and more expensive. Therefore, the premiums become more and more expensive. Therefore, it reaches the point of not being affordable. And that's when the insurance process really does break down because people can't afford insurance. They can't afford to protect themselves when a loss occurs. So all of that is resolved by mitigation and resilience. It's good to see the federal government at long last creating agencies to actually take responsibility for mitigation and resilience. What we need is a bit more funding. And I think the suggestion is $200 million a year can go a hell of a long way towards making Australia, making Australian communities more safe and more resilient. That makes everything a hell of a lot better. So there's a, there's a lot of work to do in that area. Would you say that dealing with government bodies and regulators on behalf of brokers is, has been the most challenging part of your role? It's only been challenging in the sense of not a lot of knowledge. But once you start explaining the role and the value proposition, and then you start throwing in a little bit, a few numbers like the number of AFCA complaints, the number of times members of parliament or their office ring me with complaints about broker conduct, by the way, the answer is zero. The number of times ASIC has rung me in the last five years to ask about serious concerns of broker misconduct, uh, the answer is zero. That's the good thing, is to actually explain the value proposition. And I'm so pleased when the board agreed to commission Deloitte Access Economics to do an economic analysis of the broker, the role and value of insurance broking from an economic perspective. Particularly good report. I'm, I'm delighted with the work that Deloitte did on that. And that gives us a really good foundation, whether we're going to government, to regulators, to others, to really describe the work of broking and the value proposition that occurs. And I'm really pleased that NEBA was able to do that. Do you think that's likely to have an impact on the whole commission versus fee-based advice situation as well, Dallas? I think it is, because it's a very good foundation document to explain what happens. But it's not only core relationship between the broker and the client is critically important, 
and the value proposition that brokers deliver to clients is critically important. But what Deloitte have done is they've identified a whole range of other value delivery mechanisms that occur through the, the process of broking. Substantial value flows to the insurance companies. The brokers are the ones who actually find the client, assess their needs, and put the information to the underwriters in a way that they can very easily, quickly and easily understand. That's a critically important uh, role that brokers play in providing that information flow into the insurance process. And when the policy is placed, the, the brokers then collect the money for on behalf of the insurer. So there's a whole bunch of value, value propositions that occur, but also value to the economy that the process of broking is the operation of a market. And the fact that brokers go take their clients' business to various insurers to get good terms and conditions, to get a, the preferable price, all of this is uh, critically important in terms of a, a market and a competitive market and competitive tension. And then when all of that works successfully, you've got a, a much better, much more protected community through the protections available from the insurance process. So all of that was revealed by Deloitte. And I think it's a very good starting point for next for the 2022 review on remuneration. We're speaking with Dallas Booth, the outgoing CEO of the National Insurance Brokers Association. Dallas, you qualified as a lawyer. When you qualified, you probably never thought you'd end up as the CEO of NEMA, I would have thought. If you could give some advice to your younger self, what would you say? I always had an inquiring mind, and certainly I would reinforce that message. That The key thing these days is eyes wide open. That has to be the case. An absolute commitment to lifelong learning and to learning new things, understanding new things, and watching things develop. I do a little bit of mentoring of younger brokers at the present time. And the thing that I'm talking to them about at the moment is blockchain. I'm convinced that somewhere between five and 10 years time, blockchain is going to be very much part of the normal transaction process, in whether it's financial transactions or other forms of transactions. It's going to be there. Now, people are going to have to understand that. And it's easy for me. I'm slowing down. If you're 30, 35, and you've still got 30 years of career in front of you, that's the sort of stuff you're going to have to get your head around. So that's the sort of um, technology developments which are absolutely with us. And I was I heard a blockchain seminar just recently, including Greg Medcraft, the former head of ASIC. And he said that in 10 years' time, blockchain technology and transactions will be absolutely ubiquitous. They will be everywhere. So my message to the younger ones is you've got to keep your eyes wide open. You've got to be learning about this stuff wherever you can. Climate and climate risks and how society copes and manages and finances those risks is critically important. And the third one, just for fun, is cyber. Uh, cyber is massively challenging on, on a whole range of aspects at the moment. And all of that is really important for communities and for individuals. The pandemic is another one again. The, these are the sort of things which are on our plate. These are real risks that exist and have to be managed properly for, for to allow our communities to continue to survive and enjoy and, and be happy. I think there's some really important work to be done from the younger ones, have to have the, the commitment to eyes wide open, the commitment to learning about these things. Nothing is, I'm convinced that insurance will be quite, will be fundamentally different in five years time. I can't actually tell you how exactly it's going to work, but it will be different. And so You've got to be prepared for change. You've got to be open to new ideas, open to new ways of thinking. That's how the successful future is going to be. I echo your comments on blockchain. I do know of at least one insurer in Israel 
who is investing heavily in understanding the whole blockchain mechanism and how they can utilize it for what they do. So you mentioned that you're mentoring a few uh, younger brokers. What advice would you give to people looking to advance their career in broking? What I do when I have a session with the younger ones is, first thing I go to the most recent World Economic Forum, and each year or perhaps every second year, the World Economic Forum does a report on the future of work. And that's where they set out the stuff which is transaction processing and the mechanisation of transaction processing. That's happening. And it's just going to continue to happen. But the report also identifies the areas of activity and the areas of thinking and the areas of human contribution, which are going to be absolutely crucial in the future. And that's the stuff that I want the younger ones to think about. If you're in your 25 to 30 and you've got 30 plus years of career in front of you, you need to be you need to understand what's happening, what area types of jobs are going to slowly diminish but which of the ones are going to be crucial for the future. And that's where I encourage the younger ones to think about how they can make a contribution. They can develop their own skill set and their own capacity to contribute. So you've got to start from there and then you then apply that into the world of insurance. And for me, it gets right back to when we started talking at the start about about engaging with your client, being the trusted advisor and having a strong personal relationship. A business owner is not going to have a strong personal relationship with a computer. They will ask questions and the computer will answer some of those questions. But is it really going to be spot on for that person's needs? You just never know. A broker will answer that question. One of the other things I just thinking about that stuff and thinking about younger people coming through, you know, a lot of brokers, we're now part of the grey hair brigade, right? And you're seeing a lot of people exit the industry. Do you think that the training and development that's in place at the moment is enough for younger people coming through? Because they won't have those people to fall back on over the years. Look, I'm not sure that it is enough. The good news is that amongst our young professionals, there's a massive thirst for knowledge. There's a real real desire to learn things. And I'm so pleased when I see that happening. You know, every now and then we'll, we'll offer something that's been suggested to us. We'll put it out there and, and things get oversubscribed very quickly. So there is a thirst for knowledge. It's not just because ASIC requires CPD points. It's, it's, a, it's a real desire to learn new things and grow and grow personally and grow professionally. That's good to see. But I, I think it is important on our RTOs and particularly on ANZIF as the, um, as the industry-owned training body to be absolutely on top of these things. And, and if you look at the range of offerings coming from ANSIF at the moment, I, I do give them credit for trying to be on top of whether it's whether it's climate, whether it's technology, whether it's cyber. There's a whole range of things that, that ANSIF is doing. And I think that we have to keep going in that direction. So we've talked about what the industry does well, and there's plenty of things that it does well. Are there areas you think that the broking community actually needs to improve? I'm not sure about that. The main message for the broking community is that brokers came through the Royal Commission process with a high level of respect because there was no evidence of systemic poor client outcomes. Now, we can't take that for granted. What it means, and my message to brokers at the moment is we cannot take that for granted. We have to continue to put the client's best interests absolutely first each and every day to make sure we're understanding the client needs, meeting the client needs, doing the best possible outcome that we can for the client. And that commitment to professionalism, the commitment to acting in the best interest of the client, acting at all times with ethics and integrity, 
These are the fundamentals of insurance broking. And if they are maintained, the profession of insurance broking will continue to get the respect that it deserves. If any of those standards slip, things will diminish very quickly and alternative mechanisms will be found. So that's the key, that we just have to continue to stress and emphasise the whole importance of professionalism, ethics and integrity all the way through and to maximise always the processes of putting the client's interests first. So, so COVID's had a massive impact, not just on the industry, but also on the community generally. Do you foresee a bit of a shift in corporate attitudes as a result of COVID on things like work-life balance and mental health-related issues? It's been a challenge. So a lot of the younger brokers, they learn their trade sitting beside someone and getting on-the-job training. Yes, you do your diploma of broking and learn a lot of stuff there from an academic point of view or technical point of view. But the real learning occurs working with your manager, working with the senior brokers, uh, learning on the job. That's been massively difficult. And I know that you know quite a number of our member firms, if they're working in the suburbs and, and often in the country where they've been less impacted by lockdowns, they've been back at work as soon as they can and they've been at work at, at the office as much as possible. And one of the key reasons for that is that juniors needed that daily assistance from the managers and from the bosses to, to help them grow and do their job properly. For those in the bigger firms in the cities who've had to work from home, it's been a real struggle. They haven't it's been with that loss of support that was otherwise there. It's credit to everybody for the fact that insurance broking and insurance generally has continued successfully for the last two years under all of these circumstances. Certainly, I'm massively proud of the team at NEBA for everything that NEBA's done and achieved in the last two years, working from home and, and continuing to work from home at the minute. But the thing, what's happening now is uh, the big questions about returning to the office, vaccinations and whether that should be mandated or not, those discussions are happening. And whether everybody goes back to the office five days a week or in a more flexible environment, I think a lot of people probably assume that you couldn't work from home effectively, but that's it's actually happened and companies have still achieved their objectives. So the nature of work is really going to be focused, uh, the number of desks, the amount of space, all of that sort of thing. And that that's going to be really important, but making sure all the way through that the staff are absolutely respected and cared for, they're developed and encouraged to make the contribution that they want to make. People don't come to work just to earn the salary. They come to work to make a contribution we just got to make, make sure we continue to find ways to make that happen. And there's that whole human element that you touched on before, you know, that personal relationship with the client, but even the personal relationship within your own office, right? Well, earlier this year, we didn't rush, NEBA didn't rush back to work in the office once things loosened late last year. But earlier this year, I was a bit concerned that we were losing our spark, that we were losing the inner, the, you know, the water cooler conversations, you know, we regularly refer to. And I did ask the staff to come back to the office two or three days a week for a significant period. I didn't specify exactly when and where, but people were concerned about traveling on public transport during peak hour and so on. So I said, how about we just come back two or three days a week at a time which is suitable for you and spend some time? And, And everybody did. And I thought it was good to actually get that spark, get that bounce and get those interactions happening. We all then had to go home again, end of May in June. But, you know, and I think there is already a desire amongst the team to start to get back to the office. So long as we can do it in a way which is safe, we have to put the safety and security of our staff uh, foremost in all of this stuff. But if we can get a find, make sure we can have a safe way and get people coming together, that's what they want. And the funny thing is, 
particularly amongst the brokers, what they want to do more than anything else is get together and have lunch and have a beer. We were so fortunate that we uh, we were able to have a, an industry lunch in Perth in September. We, it was just oversubscribed. 400 people got together just like that at a moment's notice. Uh, we had an industry lunch in Brisbane two weeks ago, 350 people just like that. They're just desperate to get together, tell their stories, uh, have a wine or beer and just do what humans like to do, which is to interact and talk about stuff. And that's a really important part of uh, Niebuhr's Niebuhr's role is to concept of community, bringing the intermediated insurance industry together, bringing brokers together with underwriters, underwriting agencies. It just makes that whole sector work really well. Yeah, look, it definitely does. Final two questions for you, sir. You've had the enviable position of being able to see both the insurance underwriting industry and also the broking industry If you are a young person looking to enter the industry, do you see that there's a preferential way to enter it? Or do you think, would you point them towards an insurance company to start with? Or would you point them towards broking? It probably depends very much on the person's interests. And the really interesting part of of the insurance sector or general insurance broadly is Almost every university degree is needed in the insurance industry, whether it's law, accounting, finance, health, actuaries, engineers, and even a very solid arts degree. All of those degrees are highly relevant for the insurance sector more broadly. And so if you depends upon the, the nature of the person's interest, if your interest is more on the finance and the technical financial matters, probably underwriting and so on. But if your interest is people, you've got a you know a good degree of some nature, commerce, finance, and so on. And but you're interested in people, the broking world is is absolutely relevant there. And there's a range of things to a range of opportunities, both through the smaller brokers and the international broking firms. So and the other thing is there is still the opportunity to work in different places and to travel, particularly through the larger firms who have international opportunities. It's just tremendous there. The other really good thing about insurance broking is that it is suitable for people coming out of school and they're not quite sure what they want to do. They can go in and give it a go. And if they like it, they can then start to do do the courses through you know, tier one, tier two fairly quickly, but hopefully get into a, a diploma of broking and learn a lot that way. And you can then progress into becoming, you know, with five or six years experience and a diploma under your belt, you can be a very good insurance broker and you haven't had to go to university you can earn a salary on the way through. So insurance broking provides opportunities right across the board for for people, whether coming out of school or coming out of university. That open door is a great opportunity for people wanting to join, wanting to join an industry where you don't just sit behind a desk, you actually talk to people, you deal with people and you help people. That's the critical part about, about broking. And so the final question for you, Dallas, where next for Dallas? I'm on the wrong side of 60, so what I'm wanting to do is just to slow down a little bit. I don't think I've lost my marbles. People haven't been tapping me on the shoulder too much. I'm still interested to make a contribution. I'm absolutely honoured that the ICA, to Andrew Hall at the ICA, has asked me to chair the new Business Advisory Council that they've set up following the Trowbridge report. I'm looking forward, that's a part-time role, but I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing if I can make a contribution there. There's other things happening in and around I have a personal interest in the Australian Law Reform Commission project on rewriting Chapter 7 of the Corporations Act on financial services regulation. It is just horrible by any analysis, and it is massively difficult to understand. And I think we have to do a better job, and I'll 
I want to put a little bit of time and effort of my own in to make see if I can make a contribution to that. I also have said to Phil Kewen, the new CEO, I'm more than keen to help him and to support him in whatever way that might be useful for Niebuhr and for Phil in that process. So there's a few little things to do. If there's any other opportunities where it might make sense to make a contribution and help, I'd be happy to do that as well. So the thing that I enjoy doing is looking at challenges from different perspectives and where a bunch of competing factors are at play. Often where you get, you know, where you've had actuarial accounting, legal and other challenges all involved in an issue. That's where I try and search through all of that. I'm a lawyer by training, but I've had to become expert on accounting standards, on actuarial matters, on other issues, on, you know, corporations law and so on. So where does a technical and difficult challenge involving different professions? That's where I like to get involved and, and hopefully find a way through. So I want to slow down a bit. I want to spend more time with the grandchildren, but I'm also keen to help out where I can. Well, Ed, look, it's been an absolute pleasure not just to speak to you on this podcast, but to have known you for a period of time. And I've always found you not just personable, Dallas, but also just doggedly determined, do the very, very best for the industry. And for that, I thank you, as I'm sure the industry will. Thank you so much for appearing on Business Made Personal. We really appreciate it. Good on you, Mark. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for lending us your ears. I'm Mark Silvera, and you've been listening to Business Made Personal.